0: slash James, netsuite.com, slash James.
1: This isn't your average business
0: podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Rich Cohen, author of The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, World's Greatest Negotiator, who also happens to be your dad. Your dad is this larger-than-life character, like he advising Jimmy Carter, uh, growing up best friends with Larry King and then seeing that career, you know, (laughs) rise and fall and rise again. And and then just all the stories like that got him from here to there. And also, I've read like a ton of books on negotiation. I've had a lot of podcast guests on about negotiation. I've written forwards to books on negotiation. This is the best book on negotiation. Everyone (laughs) needs to buy it. So, but... Let me ask you a question. What would your dad let's say I always think of negotiation when I'm like selling a company for instance. What would your dad do if it's the first money he's ever made and he's selling a company and somebody asks he's really nervous, he's got no money in the bank, he needs to do this deal. Somebody asks him, "Hey, so what should I buy your company for?" What would he say?
1: I don't think that he would ever make the first offer, if I'm not mistaken. He would let the, you know, and His whole thing is he really showed me when I bought a house, my first house, which is I wanted the house so bad. I just offered the asking price and thought that would do it. And he sort of said, if you offer the asking price, you'll never get that house. Because the first thing uh, that made no sense to me. And sure enough, we offered the asking price and they counter offered on their own asking price. And that made me so mad. I gave up on the whole town, you know, but basically he said, if you offer the asking price, they're just going to think we didn't. Put it up for enough money we could have made a lot more we screwed up and they're gonna look for ways out of the deal so his whole thing is that every either both sides walk away a little unhappy you know but feeling like the other side stretched a little bit further than was comfortable then the deal will stick otherwise the deal is going to fall apart so i don't know enough about your actual situation to say what he would do but i'm thinking he probably would let the other side offer first
0: but I'm going to maybe guess the opposite that maybe he would anchor higher. So for instance, maybe. he might, let's say the business, I'm just making this up. Like let's say the business is worth a million dollars and that, and he would love to have that, but he would say, uh, you know, maybe he would respond to something like you want to know what I value my company at. Hey, heck I'm so valuable. I might buy your company. Right. Uh, so it's $10 million at least. And you know, so yeah. either, either no one's going to say, Get out of the room at that. They're either going to laugh and say, no, seriously, but now you've just anchored them at this higher point, or they're going to say yes.
1: (laughs) Well, one thing he says is you got to get no response is a response. It's the first thing to know. And the second thing is, and he's really taught me this too, which is living with ambiguity, you know, because when I've had him do negotiations for me, and I know he's done it for my sister, it's always incredibly uncomfortable because it's something that I really want to happen. And I'm afraid he's going to blow it for me by asking for too much, by by pushing too hard. And that's why his whole first rule is you can never negotiate for yourself because his whole secret is you gotta care, but not that much, and approach it like it's a game. And he would say to me, you really want it, but I don't want it that bad, so I'm gonna be way more effective because I don't care if I blow it up, you know? So basically he says, you gotta live with ambiguity of not knowing if this is gonna happen or not. Yeah. Not going in saying, I have to have this, this is definitely gonna happen. Going in thinking, I don't know what's gonna happen at the end of this. And then you'll kind of play loose and then you could end up getting the thing. But that's uncomfortable. And he always say, if you can't live with ambiguity, you can do that, but you got to pay for it. That was one of his complaints. You know, when you mentioned Jimmy Carter, he worked, uh, advised the Carter administration. And his whole complaint about that was Carter said, we're definitely getting these hostages released no matter what before, blah, 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 blah. And he said, it's sort of like walking into a car dealership and saying, I'm not leaving here without that car. He's like, <laughs> what just happened to the price? You know, so... I think that's his whole thing is sort of strategic ambiguity and being willing to not know the outcome.
0: You know, I'm just going to write that. Sorry if I take notes during this because it's really great stuff. Uh, and the word strategic ambiguity is a great phrase to describe. I don't think I remember that phrase in the book, but it's a great phrase to describe what he's doing in the book. And, and it struck me, you said you've got to pay for ambiguity, but actually I think what you meant to say was ambiguity is worth money. So you're using ambiguity as a currency to get more money back or it, right. It just... Exactly.
1: I mean, you have to pay for certainty. That's what I should have said. So oh, yeah. basically that's, that's what I meant to say. So basically ah. it's, it's like you want to hurry through the process. Like you want to hurry through the negotiating process, hurried along when sometimes you just got to sit and wait and sometimes you got to wait for a long time and that's uncomfortable. That's ambiguity. And if you want to hurry through and skip all these steps, you can, but you're going to pay for it either with the house. You're going to lose the deal altogether, or you're going to end up overpaying grossly and feeling bad about it. So that's sort of his thing, which is if you don't look at this as like going to a car dealer with him as a kid, like I always hated going to car dealers. I hated the whole dance you had to go through. He loved it. He thought it was the funnest thing in the world. You know, he always looked at it like it was a game he was playing. And as a result, I saw him get incredible deals on cars, you know? So um, that was, that was his whole thing, which is, have fun and go through the steps and who knows what's going to happen at the end.
0: And, and again, you, you said his kind of catchphrase, which was, um, you got to care, but not care too much, which is kind of like this essence of negotiation, which is that, you know, the idea that you can always walk away from the deal. And then another thing that seemed to occur over and over again with him. And and I love if you tell some stories of this, he, when you're doing a negotiation, you're playing a role. It's almost like you're playing a character. And he, whatever role that is, it's usually a very confident, almost over-optimistic person or skeptical in some cases, but he sells himself very well, whatever that role is. And a lot of his stories involve where he's lying. So it kind of <laughs> is on that, that border. <laughs> but uh, maybe tell some, some stories if that, if that rings true for you.
1: Well, one of the things that amazed me always was he was playing a role and sometimes he'd be confident, but sometimes he'd act kind of stupid. Like he didn't really know what was going on. And when some, whenever somebody got very complicated and tried to teach him something that, you know, in a negotiation, you would he'd say, I don't understand. Can you explain that again? He'd make him say it like a couple times. And he always said the most powerful words in a negotiation are who, ha, huh, and what, and help me. Get the other side to help you. Wait, what's so, the second one? Huh? Yeah, who? He'd write them down on a blackboard. Who? Question. Ha huh, and why? you have to know that his best friend growing up, well, one of his best friends is this guy named Hoo-Ha, because when they would ask him a question, he was kind of stupid. He'd say, who? And they'd repeat it. He'd say, huh? So that was his nickname. So he's always going around as, you know, that was how he saw the world, basically just grunts that would forward the action along. So, 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 you know.
0: So, who? ha, what? And what's the fourth
1: one? And help me, you know, because he said the people that are your opponents will actually help you. You can get them to help you. You know, and one thing that he that he did teach me that I always think about is if you're working on something with and you see it like not happening in politics, which is if you get the other side to help you put something together, they will then have a stake in making it succeed. So right.
0: it's it's like the um the Benjamin Franklin trick. Do you know that trick where he he was a young guy, he was in the Pennsylvania State Assembly and he had an enemy. He knew the enemy had a big book collection. So he goes up to his, his nemesis and he says, can I borrow XYZ book? And the guy was surprised, but gave him the book. And then Benjamin Franklin read it and returned it a week later. Actually, I don't know if he read it. He returned it right. a week later. And then the guy never gave Benjamin Franklin a problem again because his brain thinks, oh, I'm the type of person who lends Benjamin Franklin right. books.
1: <laughs> so that's called it, the Ben it. Franklin effect. Yeah, yeah. No, that's like, and that one of his things is like to understand the price, you have to understand the player, which is understand what other people care about. And then you'll understand things, why are cost why things are costing them, you know? Uh, and,
0: yeah. 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 He said, you, you're right. He says that in the book, uh, your dad, that um, in order to, you you won't know price till you know the player.
1: Right. So it doesn't make any sense. Like what this price is. Like, for example, back to houses, we, I grew up in a house in Illinois. My parents put it on the market for, my dad didn't want to sell it. My mom wanted to sell it. My dad put it on the market for a million dollars, which was ridiculous. Okay my best friend growing up moved into the house was wearing my father's clothes around town for several years while that house was on the market but eventually some the the market rose and rose and rose and somebody gave him a million dollars for it you know so basically that price of a million dollars only made sense if you knew that this guy really didn't want to sell the house you know and if you start from there and figure out why he doesn't want to sell the house you can get him to come down and he didn't want to sell the house because he didn't want to deal with all the stuff in the house which is like the problem that you know and throwing all that stuff away so He used to say he didn't want to make my friend Mark homeless, basically, but but for whatever reason. So I think that – and there's another – because you talked about authority. He always talked about – one of the things he always talked about was negotiating at department stores because people think it's impossible to negotiate at a, a department store. And he'd say that the signs, the prices would be in these giant block letters, you know as if placed there by god as if written in lightning and how could you question the price you know and especially when he was starting doing all his stuff negotiation it wasn't like it is now there's all these books he wrote one of the first big negotiating books it was like uh, considered kind of like haggling and there was something gross about it you know and his whole thing was you're negotiating all the time no matter what you call it it's just how you get through the world so the thing he said about those big signs is you have to realize that it's a product of a negotiation it was that that price is basically arbitrary and it, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room just arguing and setting a price and you'd say any would say it like it's a mathematical formula anything that's a product of a negotiation is itself negotiable mm-hmm. so that always gave me incredible confidence when i'd go into any kind of car deal or anything i look at that price and know that price is made up there's nothing set about that price
0: that's fascinating. I like that. Everything that is a product of negotiation is negotiable. Of course yes. It yeah. makes perfect sense now. Yeah. And everything is a product <laughs> of negotiation.
1: Right. Like most I mean, things. And all, all the way back to the Bible, you start by telling stories about the first negotiation being Abraham negotiating with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if he can find, you know, whatever number of good men. And then he gets in back and forth, well, how many good men do I have to find? And then he, he basically entices God into a negotiation. Then it's just about setting the price. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Um, <laughs> you know, it does remind me though, like I know some people who recently bought a house and we were just having a conversation and they say to me, oh, and the value of our house has gone up. We got this email about real estate trends and now our house is worth 15% more. So it's in the gate, name the number. And I'm like, how do you really know that though? Like it's, is." Is someone gonna buy your house for that right now? And they're like, "Well, if we put it for sale, they would." But you don't really know that. You nobody can determine the value of most most things. It's impossible to determine the value
1: of. Yeah, you don't know that. You don't know what the. No matter what, if your house goes up and everything else has gone up too, then it's just kind of an illusion. Yeah. So you get fifteen percent more, but then you pay fifteen percent more. You know. So that's like the like the more money you make, the less wealthy you feel in some weird way. It's like you make more, but Everything gets further away from you. It's like some weird Einsteinian theory of relativity. You know, it's like so. I because I look at the value of the houses too. I'm like, boy, my house really is worth more than I paid for it, but doesn't really mean anything because everything is worth more than it was at the time.
0: No, the the key is is that is to always move to poorer and poorer neighborhoods.
1: Right, <laughs> so but then, they're harder and harder to find.
0: Yeah, that's true. Oh, but are you? Do you live in New York right now? No. Oh, okay then then it doesn't apply to you. New York, if you're you're coming from New York or San Francisco, you have like Kryptonian money because your dollar goes further every place else on the planet, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, that happened to me. I live in Connecticut, but not right outside New York, kind of more towards the center of Connecticut. And when we moved out in New York, like now 20 years ago, I so overpaid because I was so used to that other market. It's like, when you come out off the highway and you're going like 75 miles an hour down a little road, and I got completely taken, you know, because my whole sense of the market was completely skewed by New York and the immediate suburbs.
0: Didn't your dad help you?
1: <laughs> no, he really didn't. Actually, we had a huge fight because he didn't like where I was living. So I kind of had to do it on my own. And he really wasn't involved at that point. He was too busy saying that he was right about the town I had chosen.
0: So he's a very, I mean, your your dad really stands. What makes a larger than life character? Because
1: <laughs> he's well, larger first than of life. All, He's very, very funny, and all the negotiating stuff he talked came right out of the stuff he did as a kid. So the book at the beginning, you read it, so it's like all these kind of crazy adventures and troubles he got in with his group of friends that were called the Warriors. So he goes, the way he acts with that stuff, and the way he acts, you know, up to working on this uh, nuclear arms talks, exactly the same. There's absolutely no difference. So he's just a very funny guy, and he has a funny worldview. And he's from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which is, you know, out by the. Brooklyn Narrows Bridge. He was watch, that, uh, watch the on Narrows Bridge be built. And then when I was a kid, because he worked at Allstate, he got moved to Illinois. So he was really like a fish out of water in Illinois. It, people didn't understand him. He, he used to stand in line with the cars at the bank line. You know, he was completely wackadoo kind of guy, and it got him a lot of attention. And he used to say this thing, which was him in Illinois, which is a nose that can hear is worth two that could smell which it's like people hear it and they go they can't figure it out but it basically means being weird is good and there's advantages to it. So when you're going around with him it was just constant, you know, comedy and he would find unusual ways to solve simple problems and that was fun to watch.
0: I mean, when he moved to Illinois, like you mentioned in the book, a lot of people would think, "Oh, I better assimilate here, get along, get along with the neighbors and and so on." But you said he went his accent became thicker. He went further into being unique and he had a philosophy behind that.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, well, he was unusual in Illinois. His whole thing is about being unusual. And one of the most traumatic examples of my life was when I was older, you can tell by my stories, he was very involved. He's like a coach who goes out onto the field, you know, overly involved. So not a helicopter parent because he's not always helping you. He's getting involved in the game. So basically, I wanted to go become a writer, and he wanted me to go to graduate school because he had no faith in me being a writer. So we got in this big fight. I won the fight, and he backed off, and I thought, wow, I finally won a fight against him. He's letting me do my own thing, and he backed off. And about a month later, I started getting in the mail all these rejection letters from graduate schools I didn't apply to. He (laughs) applied in my name. Now, that was okay. That was nuts, but he had me apply to MIT and Caltech i am terrible at math and i had only taken one math class in college called the fundamentals of math i think we made it to division and didn't go any further than that so i said what were you thinking how could i get into mit or caltech he said when they see your application they're not going to believe it every application they get from some genius kid somewhere and your application is going to come and they're going to think we need a guy like this this is a nose that can hear you know and basically these people at these schools are used to being around they're used to always being the smartest people now they're going to be around people just as smart as them they're going to need somebody to feel superior to that can be you that was his philosophy basically for me getting to school
0: that is very true and you know before the podcast started before the podcast started we were talking about different technologies that were better that didn't win and the obvious example is vhs betamax but we were we started off talking about blackberry how in 1999 or 2000, that was the best bone out there, and it it doesn't even exist anymore. It, it lost horribly. right And I always think, and what you're saying about him describes this. I always think it's better. You don't want to be just 10 percent better or 20 percent better than everyone else because nobody could tell what that means. Like the MIT admissions office can't tell which genius is 10 percent smarter than all the other geniuses, but they could tell if someone's Unique or different. Right.
1: That was his thing, I guess, about being unique and being different and standing out and differentiating yourself. His whole thing is about differentiating yourself. And he now talks about it to my kids who are applying to college, which is you have to differentiate yourself so you stand out. Otherwise, you just, you know, fade into the thing. And the other thing that he always said, which goes with the VHS Betamax thing, he used to say, talking about books, he'd say, I'd rather have a mediocre book and a brilliant salesman than a masterpiece and a garbage salesman. And I really see that that's true. You know, he would, you always say that life is like 90% marketing. So Yeah. yeah, you see it with these books that fail books that succeed. It doesn't make any sense. And it's usually because some kind of marketing.
0: Yeah. No, it's interesting about the college thing because this is a perfect area to try it out. Like I had one daughter, I don't know if she'd want me to mention her name, who she applied everywhere. She didn't get into any school at all. And cause admissions is a, is a crap game. Like who knows? So I signed her up for race car driving lessons. And then then, so she took a year off. She took these race car driving lessons. became a licensed race car driver, competed in a race. Then when she applied, she got into every school. So that, that's that the, one you, that difference. is
1: the Herb Cohen method. Exactly. Which oh, is, you know, is Cohen you would, method. <laughs> totally, totally be approved that, you know, so that's, his, and it's that's his thing about life too. And that's what happened when he moved to Illinois which is what's funny, because in Illinois, people would always ask him, where are you from? Because they never heard anybody talk like him. And they always say, me, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming. They <laughs> say all the time. He gave give me the joke. And they'd say, what do you do for a living? You go, I'm a Presbyterian minister. Huh. And many, many years later, I interviewed Alan Simpson. I don't know if you remember Alan Simpson was a Senator from Wyoming. I, interviewed yeah, yeah, La- I was doing a profile of Larry King. And I said to Larry for Rolling Stone, I said, who should I talk to about you? And he said, call Alan Simpson. And I was talking to Alan Simpson. I finally said, how do you know Larry? And he said, oh, he's introduced me by a good friend of mine from Cheyenne, Herbie Cohen. Uh, And I was like, I couldn't, I waited to see if he was kidding. He wasn't. My dad had met him, introduced himself from Cheyenne, and they became friends. See, but this is what I mean earlier. (laughs) Like, he sells the
0: persona. Like, he sells it, and he, and he, he commits to it and doesn't give up.
1: Yeah. Well, because he's having fun. And he also, and my brother got this from him believes in the long joke, you know, that he's basically set up a joke 30 years ago and it blew up on the phone with me. I mean, I was laughing for days after that, you know? So, yeah.
0: so let me ask you a question then, because I'm curious about this. Like he describes a lot of scenarios with his childhood friends and they all grew up being adult friends. Like he's on, you know, Larry Zieger from the neighborhood in fifth grade, but then later it's Larry King, you know, eighty years later, or whatever they're <laughs> on the radio show together. So, did he make did he make many adult friends that became close friends? Because I find when you have that kind of persona, everybody gets a little turned off a little bit if you're constantly making a joke.
1: Well, I mean, I think he would choose pick his moments, but yeah, he had very good friends as adults actually. I mean, you know, when it's a, it's a problem that I think we all have, which is you don't make friends when you're a grown-up like you do when you're a kid, you know. No. So, but I, he did have a couple of his really, really good friends he made later while in government, which is weird now that I think about it. So, but he wasn't, he was never in the market for friends. You know, I, I don't feel like he was just doing his thing and sometimes he'd pick up acolytes. That's what I felt like.
0: And I love the story about one of his first negotiations because I think there's a lot of a lot to learn in that. When he was like in eighth grade or, yeah, he was in eighth grade and he basically said, this one kid was dead and he raised well, money- a, for a memorial. And then they gave a memorial scholarship named after this kid to him, but the kid wasn't dead.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, this is a famous story. I mean, famous, well, kind of famous because when I grew up, I listened to Larry's Larry King show. Larry King had a great, great radio show, the best every night from 11 until five in the morning. And he would have a guest for an hour and then he'd just talk and he'd tell all these stories about my dad as a kid. And so I grew up with that. And one of the stories that became like a classic is called the MAPO story, where they they found out a friend of theirs had gone to Arizona because he had tuberculosis and he went for the cure. And they said they would go to the school and tell the school and have his records transferred. And my father said, I got a great idea to make 20 bucks. We'll go instead of telling the MAPO's in Arizona, we'll tell them MAPO's dead. And we'll go from class to class and raise money for a funeral wreath. And they did this. They got the money. They spent the money at Coney Island. And uh, and then at the end of the year, the principal called him in and said he was, they were starting an award called the Gil Mermelstein. That was Mappo's real name. The Gil Mermelstein Memorial Award given out to students of a surprising public service or something. And the first award was going to go to my dad, Larry, and this other guy that was with him named <laughs> Buzzy Abadi. And uh, they're all freaking out, my, Larry and Buzzy. And my dad is like, that's OK, because we'll get the award. And by the time he comes back, Mapo comes back, we'll be in high school. They're at the end of junior high school through ninth grade. And no, what are they going to do? We'll be outside his jurisdiction. So the story is they, there's a huge assembly. Their parents are there. There's a reporter there from the New York Times. And that day, in the most miraculous recovery in uh, tuberculosis history, uh, Mapo's got better and he comes to school for the last day of school. And he goes, the school's empty, and he's, like, terrified by this, and he goes to the office, and they say there's an assembly, and he goes in, he comes in through these big, loud doors, doors open, and he sees the sign above the stage that says Gilmer Mermelstein Memorial Award. And I would say, now, Mappo wasn't that smart, but he knew you didn't want your name next to Memorial, you know? <laughs> so the kids in the, in the room look back, they see him, and they instantly understand this is something these guys have done, and they start to laugh. And the laughter spreads all the way up to the front of the room. And the principal sees him, doesn't even know who he is, is confused. And my dad jumps up and yells, yells, go home, Mapo, you're dead, you're dead, go home. And Mapo takes off running as fast as he can. And they go into the principal's office, they're going to be suspended for life. And they're not going to graduate. He's going crazy, they're in all this trouble. And this is my father's first negotiation. He sort of sits back and he says, you're right, we did something terrible. It's unbelievably bad what we did. And we're, we're going to pay for it for the, you know, it's going to be horrible. But think about you. You're never going to work again. I mean, we get suspended. Then you immediately have a hearing and you have to explain that these three idiots who don't even have very good grades are in the remedial class. They tell you a kid's dead and you don't, you call his house, the phone's disconnected, you mark dead. And then you have an assembly. Yeah, we're going to not graduate from junior high school, but you're out of work. You're never going to work again. So the guy sits back, as Larry said, he's totally whipped. He says, "Let's just forget the whole thing." You go to class. That will forget the whole thing. And that was a, really a case of my father learning to understand the price. You got to understand the player. He understood. He wasn't just thinking about himself and what was at stake for him. He was thinking about what was at stake for the principal. And that opened up the whole thing and turned it into a game. So, so
0: there's a lot to unpack there. First is the fact that they did it. Okay, they're kids, whatever, and. <laughs> And and it's a creative way to make money. And, and he he <laughs> thought it out enough to say, okay, when we're caught, he did understand he could get caught, but he thought the odds were when they get caught, they're beyond um, punishment. And the other kids were nervous, but but your dad had confidence that even if, that the odds were they weren't going to get caught, but even if they got caught, he seemed to have confidence that he could handle it. Then when Mapo comes in <laughs> to the memorial, it's like your dad took control of the situation. Like, why is this a salient point in the story? The fact that he yelled, Mappo, go home, and Mappo listened to him and ran home. It seems like a salient point because it, it it's not that your dad's negotiating then, but that he is then perceived as the type of guy who's going to take control of a situation. So that sets right. the stage later for the principal's office. I feel that's the important part of that. And he doesn't freeze. Story.
1: Normally, I would have frozen in that situation. He doesn't freeze. Yeah. He acts. Now, the act is kind of crazy. And there's a there's a funny story where my dad and Larry were together telling this story on the radio and Mapo called up <laughs> talked to Larry and my dad said "Go home Mapo you're dead and hung up on him and that was the last time that they ever I think that they ever spoke to spoke to Mapo and that was like when they were in their 40s so that, that's funny yeah I mean I think that uh to me is just it's almost like just a really really funny story but it has this kind of his bigger point and a big part of his first book is mm. You always have options and you always have power. And his line from his first book is "Uh, Power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. And if you don't think you got it, you don't got it, even if you got it. So that was what he, that's his whole philosophy. So his thing was really about empowering people that seem like they're in a weak position that they actually have power. And in that situation, they were in an incredibly weak position. There are three kids who've done something terribly bad and been. You know, are about to be in big trouble, and the principal who has all the power in the world runs the school. He has all this power, but they realize that the power differential could actually be used to their advantage.
0: Right, and and right. So the because of the fact that they were so much lower than this principal, right, and and he trusted them. Like it wasn't like they were number two to the principal, in which case it's okay to trust them. They were so much lower. It's like ludicrous that the that the principal would trust them. But your dad instantly calculated it's not like he planned that for months. This is what I'm going to say. If this happens, it sounds like he instantly calculated that. Okay. Here's the way I, all the attention's on us, but I need to take power and put the attention on the principal. And he needed to kind of come up with the formula for doing that. And like you said, I would have frozen too. Like that's a hard thing to come up with under (laughs) a high pressure situation. You're going to get flunked out of school. You're going to, you're going to be a bad kid. Everyone's going to hate you. Or, I'm going to turn the tables immediately on the principal and come up with this thing. And by the way, then he also convinced the New York times reporter not to write about it.
1: Yeah. Well, there so, was a New York, that, that was one of the whole other leverages he had, which is the times is going to cover this story, you know, and the the joke is the times guy says that's more of a daily news story anyway. You know, it's like <laughs> tabloid fodder. Yeah. Um, but also I think, you know, go home, mom, but you're dead was also, he acted and he kind of went for the laugh too, you know? So, I think that it, it was just a, a kind of being present in the moment kind of thing and realizing that even when they seemed like they were at the end of the road and out of options, there was still something to be done.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting examples of everything he says. Like, cause, cause also if you care too much, that's when you're going to freeze.
1: Right. Larry cared too much. Larry was completely freaking out and Buzzy Abadi was completely freaking out. That's why Larry always told the story. And Larry, Always thought my dad could kind of save him from any situation because Larry had all kinds of situations later because he'd seen it since he was a kid. You know, the way they first met, they were assigned together as crossing guards at the school and uh, my, they had an argument about whether or not that was a good job. And my dad said, this job has so much power. And Larry said, what are you talking about? It has no power. And he took the stop sign. He walked out the middle of the road and he caused a traffic jam that resulted the police to come clean it up. And he was showing them, you have ultimate power in this job. You know, but and wait, of course, wait—he's he like a,
0: he's like a nine years old when he's doing this, right? Like, yeah. how old was he then?
1: <laughs> he was very, very young. What's funny about the Maple story? I just remember this: is you know, this story has been—it's like this kind of legend of our family and around Larry. So I asked him when I was working on the book. I said, "Is this really true? Like, how much of the story is true?" He goes, "It's totally true, except for one thing, which is I didn't have." He goes, "I didn't have a big plan. I'm pretty sure this is in the book. I didn't have a big plan." to say MAPO was dead, but he goes, I have a rule. And this is true, he has this rule to this day because I've seen him do it. I have a rule that if somebody asks me something, I will tell them the truth. And if they ask me a second time, I will tell them the truth again. But if they ask me the same question the third time, I will lie to them and tell them what I think they want to hear. So he said, when he got to school, somebody said, where's MAPO? And he said, MAPO's in Arizona with tuberculosis. they he said, where's MAPO? He said, MAPO's in, and the third time he said, where's MAPO, he goes, MAPO's dead. And that's what everybody believed. And before he knew it, he kind of rode the situation as it developed.
0: Why does he have these rules? Because it it seems like these aren't necessarily (laughs) negotiating rules. These are rules for an interesting life.
1: (laughs) That's a weird one. I think that's his way of telling his kids, stop annoying me by asking me the same question over and over again. Um, But I remember that much later, my mom, my mother got very sick and she was kind of like unconscious in the hospital. It was horrible and in the morning, he said to me and my brother and my sister, uh, your mother woke up in the middle of the night. She's fine. She called me from the hospital. And my sister said, you're lying. There's no way because it seemed impossible. And he goes, no, I'm she goes, "Is that really happening?" He goes, yes, it really happened. And then she asked me and he said, no, your mother is still unconscious. And we got to the hospital and she was sitting up in bed eating breakfast, you know, and I said, oh, there's the rule there. She asked him three times.
0: Well, I guess, you know, now <laughs> that I'm thinking about it, it makes sense with his other rules because he's not. He cares about conveying this information to you and your sister. It's important emotional information to you, but he's not going to care too much. (laughs) He's not going to like say, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to be upset. Like, you know, he's just going to, he's just going to give up caring about it.
1: A thing where i had a softball team in college like in a beer league softball team and we were losing and i thought we were really good and we were losing and everybody said get your dad to be our manager because he looked at the time he looked a lot like walter Matthau, and everybody loved the bad news bear so they said and they wanted him to wear a jersey that said "Buttermaker" on the back because that's the name of the guy walter Matthau. Mm-hmm. so my father i thought he's like in a ceremonial role and he took over this team and he started instituting all these very complicated position shifts like you see in the major leagues now but i thought it made us like a laughing stock And we wound up in like a playoff game and we were ahead by one run and the other team had the bases loaded and he insisted we intentionally walk a hitter who my father had scouted. And I'm like, you can't intentionally walk somebody in slow pitch softball. We'll be laughed out of this town. We won't be able to live here anymore. And we got in a big fight, like right out on the field. And I fired him. He always talked about this. You fired me as manager of your softball team. And he went home. And that kid hit a home run grand slam and we, we were knocked out of the playoffs oh so he gosh. was <laughs> i mean it's just weird to kind of like so to him like sports because he coached basketball when he was in the army and all this stuff it's all the same it's all about human behavior and all about doing what's unexpected and controlling the pace so his thing with the basketball coach is you can beat a great team with a good team if you dictate the pace of the play and you frustrate people you know So, so how do you do that?
0: Like in 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 basketball, but now I'm thinking about other situations. What what's what's some good methods for doing that?
1: Well, you don't necessarily return phone calls right away. That's no problem. He had a rule. Yeah, he you wait. You let time work for you instead of against you. That's the ambiguity, you know. And he did this whole funny thing a long time ago. So it's not exactly maybe it wouldn't work exactly like this still. Would which is tele. He did a whole thing on telephone negotiations. And one thing he did was about hanging up on yourself. Like you never hang up on another person when things are going bad, but you hang up on yourself. And he did a whole demonstration now. Well, that's very interesting what you said. I'd like to click and cut yourself right off in the middle of sentence. And I have done that. That actually works because no one thinks you've hung up on yourself. They think the call just dropped. Mm-hmm. So that was all about, you know, he had the rule time, information, power. Those are the three things that you need. And information is very important. That's knowing about the other side. And power, you always have, even if you don't know it. And as far as time, that's about controlling the pace. And one of the things he always said that I always think of is that anything, nothing will get done until right at the deadline, no matter what that deadline is. And the thing that kind of made him sort of famous where I grew up was during the Iran hostage crisis, he predicted when the hostages would be released. And he was right, he was within three minutes or something. And it was just because he figured out when the deadline was. And he realized the deadline was Jimmy Carter's inauguration because the Iranians didn't want to deal with Ronald Reagan because they were scared that he was insane. Yeah. you know, and, and, and they'd already missed the opportunity to get a very high price just before the presidential election. Election's over. So he said he looked for the next deadline. The next deadline is the inauguration. They will release them one minute before the inauguration. And they released them two minutes after, I think, something like that. It's crazy. So,
0: one thing he says though is that, you know, even if you don't have power, have the perception of power. Uh, and I think that's not so easy for people. Like, and he clearly pulled it off being an eighth grade student in trouble against the principal. He gave off the perception he had more power than the principal. And of course, in all these stories you're saying, like, here he is telling, you know, G- giving Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan advice about the hostage crisis. But, like, for someone who doesn't understand this, like, well, I don't have any power. How do I get the perception of power? Like, what would, how, how do you, how do you create the perception of power?
1: Well, you have to realize what the leverage points are on the other side. So to understand that, you have to an- understand the other side and realize that basically how you present yourself is how people will accept you. So a- another story like that is when at the Democratic Convention in Madison Square Garden, I always, because this was, this amazed me when I was a kid. He told Larry, I'll meet you at inside on the stage. And Larry said, there's so much security, they'll never let you in. And there he was, he showed up. And I met a reporter had seen what he'd done. He basically walked up the security guard with a notepad and a pen and started asking him a lot of questions about when's your shift start? How many people are on? And he convinced this guy somehow that he was a supervisor. Just by asking him a lot of questions, then said, you're doing a great job. It will be noted. And the guy just let him walk on by and say, thank you. And that was just about sort of, pretending like he had power, you know? Okay.
0: So, so I, so I, I, read that story and I, and I have some questions. Uh,
1: okay.
0: one is what if the guy was like, uh, I'm sorry, who are you? Why am I answering these questions to you? Like, what if this guy tried to assert his own power? What's, what's the next power technique?
1: Um, if it didn't work, I don't know exactly what he would have done. That's about not being connected to the outcome, which is, I'm sure he would have improvised in some way, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm not him, and um, so I can't say exactly what he would have done. But what I liked as a kid, as far as parenting goes, he, he never felt like you were beaten. There, were o- there was always an option. There was always something to do. And as far as how do you project power, you just realize that you have power. You can, you, one of the ways you have power is you get people to invest a lot of their time, and then they want to have a good outcome. So one of his really basic things, is he talked about, he called it the nibble, when you go shopping for a suit and you spend a lot of time with the salesman, get him to spend half his day with you. And he'd say, then when you're standing on the thing, getting it you know, measured to be tailored for you, on the looking in the three-way mirror, you turn to the guy who's writing up the sale and say, what kind of ties are you going to throw in with this? And the guy's like, oh, I've just spent three hours with this idiot, and now I'm not going to get this sale up. I don't give him ties. I'm giving him ties. And I know that works because I've done it. You got power. If you think you have it or not, that's the big lesson.
0: That's so fascinating because I guess at the end of the day, no matter what your label is like principal or boss or store or whatever, those are just labels. And at heart, we're all kind of these mildly insecure humans.
1: Right. And those, those titles you're talking about, they're also products of a negotiation. It's the same thing. The same thing is that none of this, He'd always say, You unless God put it there, you can't negotiate, you can negotiate it. His book was called You Can Negotiate Anything, unless it was placed here by God. But then he goes on to demonstrate how you can't even negotiate with God. And he starts out with uh Abraham saying to God, God, I see how you were destroying the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Another great decision. Another good move, God. But what are people going to say about you if they think you're destroying good people with bad people? You know? So it's all about. Realizing what the other side wants and what the other side needs, you know. So uh it's interesting because his whole belief, and still belief is, because my father's alive, is like he po- he's one of the people that coined the terms or possibly coined the term win win negotiation, which is both sides can win. It's not a zero sum game, you know. And to do to get what you want, you got to help figure out what the other side wants and get them that, and you end up somewhere in the middle and just the idea of you have to let the other side that you're negotiating against, save their dignity, not be humiliated and be able to feel good about themselves in front of their kids. And if you don't do that, the deal is going to fall apart.
0: Yeah. Cause think about it. And let's go back to the democratic national convention again with that guard, like, like your dad says, everything's a negotiation. So he wants to get past the guard and now he can either run and outrun right. the guard, in which case the guards, going to feel bad if your dad succeeds or it's just going to be a huge mess for everyone
1: right or
0: what he did was he created a scenario where this guard feels like his supervisor approves of him so he feels complimented him
1: he said he's doing a great job and he patted him on the back you know so and the guy oh go ahead (laughs) no and the guy felt good about it and he my father knew he wasn't going to be chased or something like you're talking about like he was in
0: and you know, it's also interesting the things about time, information, power, because if you think about it, those are also currencies. Like you, you spent your time, like in the case of the uh, suit salesman, you, spent your, you already spent your time on, on me, but you haven't gotten anything yet. So you're going to really feel if you spend a dollar, you, you want something for that dollar. So this guy spent time and now he's waiting to get something. So the negotiation was already unfair because the way the salesman situation is set up is that you don't get anything until you spend the time. Right. So your dad takes advantage of that, that no one else takes advantage of.
1: Well, that's also, you know, a lot of people wouldn't want to do that. They just want to go in and buy the suit. One, maybe they find it's embarrassing to ask for something like that. Maybe they, they makes them feel bad, like makes them feel cheap. Maybe they're bored and they don't want to do that. But see, that's his whole thing. Like, if you approach life like it's a game, then you'll play better and you'll actually be more successful. And that's him, you know, approaching life like it's a game. And he had fun doing those things.
0: I mean, did you ever see him in a situation where he really did want something? So he had to give up too much time or information or power more than he was comfortable with?
1: I really never did. I mean, you know, except... You know, in a situation where you're in the hospital, like when my mother was sick or something, that's a different kind of situation. Yeah. Because you really want something and you're completely at the mercy of other people and whatever. That's no one's ever can master that situation. It's not masterable, I don't think. But as far as out things out in the world, I really do believe his thing is the secret to life is to care, but not that much. And it's about detachment, you know. And he always used to say to me that in this world, we all rent. No one owns. So behave like a renter. Go ahead and, you know, trash the place, basically, you know. I mean not really, but he so he never got attached to and it drive me crazy because I would want something and we would we would end up not getting it, you know, when I was a kid, because whatever didn't work out. And he never really seemed to care about that. It was always just about the the sort of game and the and then his thing was always if you don't get this, you'll get something else and it will be better.
0: Always. Yeah. You know, know, I think that's hard. (laughs) This is something I've only realized maybe very, very recently where I feel like I've done tons of negotiations in my life, but I had to fake not caring. Like I really cared about all of them. And it was very hard to not care. Yeah. And, And this kind of detachment, this idea that, I mean, I've seen it enough where I didn't get what I wanted and, and it ended up being for the best that, that now I ride with that a little better. But I, I couldn't at first.
1: Well, that's why you have somebody else negotiate for you usually. That's why we all have agents and stuff, because if 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 we negotiated for ourselves, we would agree immediately to the worst possible terms, you know, because we care way too much and want it to happen.
0: Right. But that's in like high stakes situations where you have an intermediary, but like your dad said, everything's a negotiation. Right. So, so in your life, where have you seen you use these ideas, even like a little bit?
1: I've seen them with a car for sure. I mean, I have to buy a car like every five years or something. And always, if you go into the car dealership and you know how they sell the car, now it's a little different because of the internet, but it's basically still the same. And, you know, basically, they're trying to tell you that a price is a price and you know that the price isn't the price. You, you know what? You deal with it with college, with your kids' tuition, which is when you hear these tuitions at these schools, you can't believe it. But you realize that's like a sticker price. No one really – very few people pay that price because no one could afford it. The schools would be empty. You know, that's all in negotiation. That's all about differentiating yourself and saying, well, what if my kid, you know, takes a job and works at the school? You know, can that be part of the tuition? What if he helps a teacher teach a class? You know, there's all these kind of ways uh, to negotiate. And if you get more than one school making you offers, then you can, you know, bring down the price by getting them to compete with each other. One thing he said that's so interesting to me is he said, don't look at yourself as somebody buying a product. Look at yourself as somebody selling money. You know, you're the one with the product. The product is the money and they want your money.
0: Yeah. So basically-
1: yeah you see it you really see it when you're dealing with colleges because that's one of the most if your kid's going to go to college that's one of the most expensive things you have to deal with as a parent i have a bunch of kids and it's like but then you have two kids now if they both go to the same school you can do like a package deal you know so he when he talked about buying washing machines at sears he'd say for example we'll say to them what's the on sale price you know, even if it's not on sale, there was it, it, everything was always just on sale or just about to get be on sale. You'll definitely get that price. Say, what if the machine is blemished or it's a floor model? And then you say, if there is no blemish, think of creating a blemish. You know, and then you say, um, what if I buy 10 of these? You know, what's the price if I buy them in volume? And And all these different ways that you can, you know, get them talking and get the price moving. So, I found it. It's very empowering. That's this whole thing. Cause mostly you go into these situations feeling like you're just a victim of circumstance and it's scary. And when you sort of know that you can do stuff and that there's moves you can make and that it's never really over, you know, as long as you get there before the meeting ends, you're not late. That's something else he used to say, you know, Oh yeah. You that, that was a great one. Wait, say that one again. I like that one. <laughs> as long as you get there before the meeting's over, you're not late.
0: You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, again, l- let me ask you, like, when have you personally used these techniques Like, mean, other than the car? Like, let's say, I guess with books you have an agent, but I don't know what are other just like day-to-day negotiations that you feel like well, in the back I'll of your mind, you, your like, dad's words, I'm,
1: my, my last book was called Wees about being a youth hockey parent It was very intense here in Connecticut. And my sons play youth hockey and it's all about getting on these teams and you have to negotiate to get them on the best teams. You know, what if I give you two kids? What if I find a goalie? Because they never have goalies. I know a really good goalie. What if I can find you a goalie? You know, there's a lot of different ways to negotiate onto these teams. So I think that you do do it every single day in that you're working out deals. And even the minor, even this thing was always, even with your family, even with your kids, you know? So for example, his book began with a story about me at age nine, I hated to go to restaurants out to eat. I didn't like dark restaurants. And they would take me and we went to this restaurant in Northbrook, Illinois called Henri's. And I stood up on the table and yelled, this is a crummy restaurant. And they dragged me out of there. They said, they didn't bring me to a restaurant again for nine years. And that was a form of negotiation. I got what I wanted. I never had to go to a restaurant again. And the thing is that you're negotiating, you know, with your, with your husband, with your wife, with your kids all the time. And you just got to realize what's happening and then you can sort of be in control of that.
0: Well, it sounds like a little bit in here is if people don't know if you're insane or not, <laughs> it's easier to negotiate. So, so like for instance, with the Iranian hostage negotiation stuff, people didn't know if Reagan was, in, the Iranians didn't know if Reagan was totally crazy. They didn't know what he was going to do to them if they didn't release the hostages and with you on, uh, as a nine-year-old standing on the table, if they ever take yeah. you to a restaurant, they don't know if you're just going to like flip out and just like d- destroy things.
1: Yeah, that's a whole, he has a he has a whole, there's like the Soviet style, then there's the crazy man style. You know, the problem is it's hard to build long-term relationships as the crazy man. And look, we haven't had a long-term relationship with Iranians in a long time. So, but his thing was that, I mean, he was part of the people that advised Reagan that he should make this statement where he said, you don't negotiate with barbarians. And we know that that's, because later on, he was involved in negotiating with the Iran, host- with the um, you know, the uh, Iran Contra with them. I mean, illegally. So, but at the time, that was seen as a way to motivate the Iranians to negotiate with Carter, and to finally get the hostages released and start new. So, there is always an advantage to being crazy. The problem is, it's hard to build up long-term relationships when you're a crazy person.
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder, like, some things that stop me like his experience with this suit salesman. I'm just afraid <laughs> people won't like me.
1: And yeah, it, well, doesn't even, it.
0: It. it doesn't even matter if I'm never going to see the person again. I just, I feel like I'm almost too much. I think I feel like you're either a salesman or a negotiator and I'm too much of a salesman. I just want people to like me. I'm selling the product of myself and I don't negotiate so well then.
1: Right. Well, that's something he would say you have to get over, <laughs> you know, that's like, that's your, that's, you have to, you know, he always used to say to me when I'd be scared of things, he'd go like 90% of the people in the world are morons and schmucks. So forget about that. You know, doesn't matter. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. So forget about it. And you're not, you're not, you want to look at, you know, not necessarily, like, look at the competition here. You're okay. You're not great, but you're okay in this group <laughs> of people. You know, so um, I would think that he would think that that's just something that's part of looking at it as a game. Like if you were not living as yourself, but in someone else's life, you'd have no problem with it. If you had fun doing it, you'd have no problem with it.
0: So it, you know, another, you just used the word schmuck. And that reminds me of another story in the book where you're thinking of buying this car, a Honda civic. And Mm -hmm. your dad notices that the previous owner was, it's a used car. Your dad notices that the previous owner had written like his name or his girlfriend's name or whatever on the car. And he wouldn't let you buy it, and and you're like, why? It, it has all the details you said I needed to have in a car. And he says, no, I was, uh, clearly a schmuck owned this car before. <laughs> so I guess his point there, though, is that if you're buying from a schmuck, the car might have maybe. I, I assume the point was if you're buying from a schmuck, the car might have hidden things wrong with it that you can't see so easily.
1: Right, and also he just this car's kind of like I don't know. That was it was so funny what he said is he said. I said, this is the exact right car. And he said, You're missing the point of schmuck on this car. And I think it was that the car was somehow got bad energy or was cursed. Mostly it was just very, very funny. And yes, the car probably was ridden into the ground and treated like total crap. You know, and he just had a thing about that car, but it was it was really funny because what one thing he always said is, you know, it's the how versus the what. Where there's like a theme in the book, which is, you know, we would eat at a restaurant in our town that really wasn't very good. And I said, why do we always eat at this crappy restaurant? He'd say, because they always give us the booth, you know? So it was like, it was so comfortable there that we didn't really care that the food stunk. The experience was so pleasant, you know? So there's like, there's the content. And, and then there's the, so that was really an example for that, for me with the car, which is there's more there than than meets the eye. And there's something else going on beneath the surface, you know, and that really came out of Brooklyn, I think.
0: And now, going from brooklyn all the way to the top most important negotiations in the world like whether the world is destroyed or not anytime <laughs> soon how did he get involved in all of that
1: um that's like a basically he started it's his story so crazy which is he was uh, went to nyu law school at night on the gi bill and during the day to make money because he was newly married had young kids and was living in brooklyn he worked at Allstate as a claims adjuster. But like, And he was so good at that that uh, he kept rising up in the ranks of that. And there's a funny story, which isn't in the book, where I always thought of this, where he, uh, he'd tell me the story about this guy that wouldn't – this is goes back to your story about how you don't want to do it. You don't want to do the negotiation thing. This guy was a claims adjuster, but he was doing a terrible job. And my father was a supervisor and said, you you can't do it this way. It's not working. And the guy said, it's just not me. It's not my style. I'm not going to press prices like that. My father said, you know what? Then don't be you when you come into work. Be someone else. Be you at home. When you come in here, be her or him or even be me. Just don't be you because you're going to wind up getting fired. I'm telling you. You know, so that's like about wearing different roles and, and being able to play your role. So anyway, he ultimately rose up through Allstate and he got transferred to Illinois because Illinois, Allstate was owned by Sears. Sears was in Illinois. And he ended up like moving all the way up to Sears to the point where they liked what he was doing so much. They put him, he was in the executive suite and he wound up negotiating their deals and also having him train executives how to negotiate. And then they started sending him out to other companies. So he finally quit Sears and went off and did that on his own. And then he started being hired by companies to mediate, to represent them and to teach their, nego- uh, their salesmen and their business guys how to negotiate. And finally, he started running these seminars at the FBI and the CIA, teaching them how to negotiate. Now, this was like a new field. And then he taught at Michigan and all these schools. And then finally, somebody brought him in during the Carter, during the Iran hostage crisis, because this was kind of seen as this guy knows what to do and we need a different kind of voice We needed those that can hear at the table, and then he sort of met all these people, and then he was in that world for a long time and worked when I was a kid for the FBI and the CIA and the State Department, and ultimately worked on the START talks, uh, which is, you know, negotiating with the Russians about uh, the amount of nuclear missiles, but it all amounted to the same thing, which is the what, you know, versus the how. and. Here's a story that one of my favorite things she always said was sitting on the ground at O'Hare Airport with the flight delayed when I was a kid in November an early snowstorm and the guy in the seat next to him turned to him and said you know it never snowed this early when Daly was mayor and that was sort of like you know the the power of personality in those situations
0: and so okay in the start negotiations tell me about the what versus the how like how do you navigate that when the stakes are so high.
1: Well, I think he would be a big example of you extend, you know, the parameters. So like what Reagan did, which was this is when my father was there, when Reagan did, is he offered Gorbachev, let's just get rid of all the missiles. You know, totally unexpected. Right. He's going to meet with Gorbachev, I think that was in Iceland. And he said, we'll just get the advisors out of the room and we'll just get rid of nuclear weapons. And that, of course, they, they didn't happen. Right. But it kind of opened everything up. It changed the basic borders of what was negotiable. You know, it made it much broader and it made Reagan seem slightly crazy but interesting and a guy who could do something. You know, so also there was at that time the Star Wars. I don't know if you remember, like, they were going to – these systems, which every scientist said would never work. But my father's point was, well, we don't think it will work, but the Russians think it'll work. They've been stealing US technology for like 70 years. They believe our technology will work. And that completely causes this other destabilizing force, which is we can have a technological breakthrough that makes their weapons irrelevant, which forces them to negotiate to get something for it while the missiles are still valuable. So these are all different ways to kind of open up and change the parameters with the Russians because you're stuck in this kind of channel where you've been stuck in for, you know, 50 years.
0: So it seems like, you know, at the negotiating table, everybody kind of brings their list of things they have and things they want. And it seems like one good idea your dad has throughout a lot of these is that at the negotiation table, he has suddenly something else additional that people didn't think he had. So like in this case, Hey, both sides have nuclear weapons. But we also have this Star Wars space shield, by the way. So you you're gonna have to negotiate against that as well. So so or or I don't know in in the principal's office, he's like, yes, we each have our reputations, but your reputation's more valuable, sir. So (laughs) we gotta negotiate about that first. And right, uh, so it's like he brings extra. His list would be a little bit bigger than the other person's
1: right and it's just like so you go to the start talks where they're negotiating about different classes of missiles and star wars and all this and it's really no different than when he would negotiate for a car we'd bring in other things that the guy wouldn't think of that he might not want to pay for you know well what about if you what if i get a second car you know or what if i don't have the rustoleum or whatever the hell it is you know what i mean what if there's no floor mats in this car how much will that cost which is you can kind of like these certain borders have been set for negotiation, but knocking down those borders kind of opens up everything.
0: Ah, that is totally fascinating because like earlier you said, um, you know, four most important or five most important phrases, who, huh, what, I don't know and help me, but also what if is important because it kind of punches yeah. through those borders. Like if you ask ridiculous questions, like what if I buy five cars and the guy says, well, then the price would be 20%. Now suddenly he could say, "Well, just give me the twenty percent off, and I'll come right. back to you next year." Yeah. So, so the borders are unclear now, but we know that the guy's willing to accept twenty percent off.
1: Right. We we know that he's you know once you're negotiating, then everything's up for grabs because everything's negotiable. And by the time he was involved in the Star talks, everything had settled into kind of this very strict pattern, you know, where it was like for like in what they sort of traded and. And the whole idea was to open it up and and do other things, bring in other things that you might not be thinking of to extend the parameters. And I think you do that all the time. You know, what if I give you this, you know, I was like playing, remember the board game risk. Yeah, of course. So I was playing with a bunch of friends when I was a kid and my friend said, I won't attack you. If you give me your Snickers bar, I had a Snickers bar. I was like, but that's not part of the game. He's like, it's part of my game. You know, (laughs) I thought that was like brilliant cause he, and I gave him my Snickers bar and he didn't attack me. So, um, you got to see sort of beyond the board, if you will.
0: Well, <laughs> I, Rich Cohen, author of many books, but, and I've loved all your books, but this one, the adventures of Herbie Cohen, world's greatest negotiator who also happens to be your dad. I'm really jealous. You have a dad like that. It sounds like <laughs> a great time and fun fun stories all the way through but such great advice on negotiating and it's not the book is filled with stories it's not an academic thing like when you went in this situation do this when this do this it's but you you absorb the techniques by seeing how this guy your dad Herbie cohen acts and then the stories from his being a kid to larry king to the president to all the stuff and you have some very kind of personal emotional stories in there as well it's just such it's it's a riveting book thank you rich once again for coming on the the podcast
1: yeah thanks for having me it's great to talk to you